morning, everybody. My name is Jason. Happy Easter to you all. I'm one of the pastors here at Illuminate on behalf of all of us. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, as was said earlier, if we haven't had the chance to connect with you yet, you can hit that QR code on the back of the seat. You can fill out that little card, drop it off at the tent on your way out. So uh, I want to begin this morning by probably uh, what will be the obvious to um, many of us, and, and that is this. In churches all over America today, Easter Sunday, the message that's going forth is kind of predictable because we all have the same theme that we're working from, and that theme is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, uh, what I've also noticed is that for people who have grown up around church, obviously you are familiar with this account. But for people who have been around the church and for those who are not in the church, what you might not be so familiar with is the, the so what of Easter. In other words, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to you personally? So in order to answer that question, we're going to go back in time 2,000 years, right? First century AD, the time that Jesus lived while he was walking on the earth. And one of the things that we notice about the life of Jesus as we read through the biographies, that's essentially what you have in your hands in the Bible. It's a bio collection of biographies about, about Jesus Christ. When you read some of those biographies, you notice very quickly that Jesus made many enemies. And the reason why is because he kept calling out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He kept talking about the brokenness of the religious system. And you may know a few religious people that are hypocritical. They don't, like, they don't like it when their hypocrisy is spoken to. And so they wanted Jesus silenced, but he wouldn't stop talking. So ultimately, they decide this man needs to die. So they succeed. The religious leaders succeed in having Jesus arrested. He's put on trial. The whole thing is a fake. It's a fraud, though. They bring in false witnesses. They spread lies about Jesus. There's this guy that we get introduced to. His name is Pontius Pilate. It's interesting. History actually tells us a little bit about this guy. Archaeologists have uncovered some interesting artifacts relating to his rule. We learn that he actually was the governor in the region of Judea, which is where Jesus was at this time. He had a lot of political power, and he loved to throw it around. He was a man that was committed to his own political advancement, and he saw Jesus as an opportunity to do that. So ultimately, he's the one who has Jesus delivered up to be crucified. And so in those biographical accounts now, the authors spend a lot of their time focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, one of the authors, a guy named Luke, he actually begins to write about Jesus participating in what is essentially his own death march, alongside two other criminals. In fact, that's where we're going to pick it up in the text. Luke chapter 23, verse 33, we read this. When they came to the place called the skull. So you're going to get a lot of really specific details. What's interesting is that this Greek word for skull is the Greek word cranion, from which we get our English word cranium. And so if you've been to this area, you notice that there's some really interesting features in the landscape. One of those interesting features in the landscape is, is that there's this thing that looks like a skull that's carved into rock. Some archaeologists believe that was the literal location of Kranias, or the skull. And that's where they took people to be crucified. And so that's where Jesus is 
headed. There they crucified him. Along with the criminals, one is on his right and the other is on his left. Now, what's really interesting about these accounts is that we don't get what one might expect. What I mean by that is when it comes to death by crucifixion, it's pretty awful. If you've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, you know, it's just super violent. A lot of blood being spilled, and I actually think he gets it right. It's a horrific way to die. But what's interesting is that we don't get those gory details in any of the texts. Why? Because that, that's actually not the point. That's not what the authors want you to focus on. Well, then what do they want us to focus on? Well, they reveal what you, they want you to focus on by the details that they include. So this is what, what we read next. Jesus speaks, and he says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. So right away, the authors want you to know that there's a connection between the cross and forgiveness. We'll talk more about that later. They don't focus on the gory details. They focus on what's coming from the heart of Jesus, and this is really incredible because if you think about it, He's offering forgiveness to the very people that have mocked him, they've spit on him, they've pulled his beard out, and they've tortured him. And what's inside the heart of Jesus is really unique. It's not anger, it's not vengeance, it's not retribution, it's forgiveness. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So. What we learn in the text is that the word that's used to describe Jesus' outer garment describes a piece of material that's made out of one single cloth, which means it was very expensive. And that's why the soldiers didn't want to divide it up, right? Because that would make it less valuable. Back in the day, most garments were made up of patchwork because they were cheaper, more inexpensive. So if you had something that was made out of one entire piece of cloth, it was very valuable. So they cast lots for it, which is another way of saying it's kind of like maybe they rolled the dice or they flipped a coin to determine which one would get it. Now you have to ask yourself, why are these details in the narrative? Well, just remember that because they're actually there for a reason. It's a really important reason. They didn't waste any ink, no paper when they're talking about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So the people stood watching. They're watching this crucifixion take place. And the rulers, those are the religious leaders, they sneer at Jesus, which is another way of saying that they mock him. They said, this guy saved others, which is part of Jesus' reputation at this point. The beginning of the week, he rolls into Jerusalem, and he's got pretty big entourage. Why? Because people that were with him had seen him save people miraculously he healed the blind restored health to the sick till this point he's brought at least three people back to life so he has this reputation not everybody in the city or in the crowd knows this though but they've heard so they say all right okay he saved others so let him save himself if he is who he claims to be if he has the right qualifications if he is God's Messiah, which means promised deliverer, if he is the chosen one, 
then let him save himself. Because right now, it's not really looking too good for the man. So the soldiers also came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You see all this salvation language that's circling around Jesus? There's this, this sense that the man was about saving. So there was a, a written notice above him, a sign, which read, this is the king of the Jews. And this was the Romans' way of just sticking it to the Jews. Jesus claiming to be a Jew. <laughs> He's like, yes, I am a king. I'm the king of the Jews, but not just the Jews. I'm actually the king of the entire world. But yes, I, I am the king of the Jews. And so Roman authority would take advantage of this. And they'd be like, all right, Jews, this guy claims to be your king. Let's label him as such as we nail him to a cross. This is your king. Jews hated living under Roman authority, so the Romans would stick it to the Jews every chance they could get. Let's post a sign above your king as we kill him. So one of the criminals who hung there began to shout at Jesus. He hurls insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? And save yourself and save us. There is tremendous irony in this moment, and here's why. Because Jesus is actually in the process of saving everyone, including the people that are torturing him and mocking him, and even the thieves that are next to him. Let me say it again. The irony in this is everybody's shouting the salvation language. Save yourself, save us. Jesus actually is. But the people don't recognize it. And here's why. Because they're not fully aware of what they need to be saved from. Let me say that again. They're not fully aware of what they need to be saved from. And what I found is that's true of many people today. So think about it like this. There's about 8 billion of us on the planet. Now let me ask you a question. I just want you to be honest with me. How many self-centered decisions do you think you make in a 24-hour period? A few of you are smiling and laughing because you're honest. The rest of you are stone-faced because maybe you don't want to deal with what's really going on inside you. These are hard things to admit. All right, so let's, let's start with this number. Could it be 10? You think, and when I'm, when I'm talking about self-centered decisions, what I'm talking about is you really, no, how about like this? You know that your decision is not in the best interest of another person, but you don't care. And you're going to do it, you're going to think it, and you're going to speak it, regardless of its effects on somebody else. How many times a day do you think you do that? Ten? Five? Four? I'm going to be really nice to you. Let's say three, okay? Let's say in a 24-hour period, you make three decisions that are in no one else's best interest but just yours. In fact, that decision may cost somebody else, okay? There's eight billion of us on the planet. That means in a 24-hour period, three times eight billion, there's 24 billion selfish decisions made every 
day. And because we live in this thing called a society, what you do affects me. What I do affects you. It's inescapable. So none of us gets out of this web because I think if we were to be really honest with each other, we would have to admit the world is broken. Uh, within our own country, there is a tremendous amount of divisiveness right now. There are nations at war with each other, and innocent people are dying every day. The world is broken. Now, here's where it gets a little challenging, because as we search our own hearts, we all have to own up to the heartache and pain and misery that we inflict on others to a greater or lesser degree. And we probably do it in some measure every single day. So there's this giant ball of confusion and heartache, all of those. That's what the Bible refers to as sin. Sin is not a word we hear very often in our culture, but essentially what it means is you're doing your own thing, right? God has spoken. These are the things that he wants for Humanity created in his image, but we decide, nah, we'd rather do our own thing. And, and by rebelling against God, we sin, and it leads to all kinds of disruption. And, you know, we're, we're all guilty of it as much as we don't want to admit to it. So um, there's this longing in the human heart for hope and peace. So what's the solution? Well, some believe that government is the solution, right? But if government was the solution to the world's problems, then God would have sent us a politician, a benevolent politician, but he didn't. So maybe we just need more education, all right? Some of us have had a lot of education. And the fact of the matter is, again, for many of us, we have educated ourselves into imbecility. So if education was the answer, then God would have sent a great teacher or professor, but he didn't. Instead, God sent a savior. Why? Because you and I actually need to be saved from ourselves. You and I actually need to be saved from ourselves. G.K. Chesterton, great witty writer, he responded to a question, the opinion section of the newspaper, just asking a simple question, what is wrong with the world today? His response, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. There's a tremendous amount of self-awareness there. So, as you read through the Bible, you come to understand now why Jesus had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, it has to do with this sin issue. So, there are these verses that are really hard to accept on the surface, but I think we kind of intuitively know that they are true about us. We just, we struggle to accept the consequence. Like, for example, I'll give you one. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. You work all day, you get paid, right? You're ready to receive that paycheck. That's something that you have earned. Well, when you work sin, the payment to you is death. 
Now, right away, you might be thinking, oh, okay, back off a little bit, right? Like, lighten up. That seems a little extreme. That actually tells you just how holy God is. That's gotten lost on a lot of people. So here's how it works. Part of what makes God holy is the fact that he is just. And God can't ignore all the wrong that you and I do. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just, right? It's funny how life works because when we do something wrong, we cry out, give me mercy. But when somebody else does something wrong, what do we say? Justice. We want justice. What's really cool is that on the cross, the justice of God and the mercy of God collide. And what comes forth? Jesus said it. Forgiveness. So I read the first part of the verse, which is, it's kind of disheartening, right? The wages of sin is death. We're all guilty. Nobody escapes. Nobody gets off the hook. But the second half is this. The free gift of God is eternal life, and that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Martin Luther was a great theologian, and he referred to this as the great exchange. This is my modern-day version of what he's saying. Basically, you take all of your junk, all of your mistakes, failures, all of your rebelliousness, all the pain and heartache that you've inflicted on other people, you actually put that on Jesus. And in return, you get eternal life. That's a really good deal. Now, here's the important thing to think through. And this is why Christians get so hung up on the resurrection. Maybe you're familiar with, you got some Christian friends and you're like, you know what, they're really nice people and, and I like having them around, but man, they're so hung up on this resurrection thing. Here's why. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then what makes you think he has any kind of resurrection power that he can give to you? If he couldn't do it himself, then you don't have a chance. Doesn't make any sense. That's why the Apostle Paul is honest enough to say if Jesus wasn't, didn't rise from the dead, then Christians just pat him on the head, you know, pat him on the back and send them their merry little naive way. Pity them. So you might be here this morning and you might be thinking, okay, tracking so far, uh, but I'm really having a hard time believing that someone would come back from the dead. Here's what I want to tell you. You're in great company. Because you know the earliest followers of Jesus, they had the same doubts. They did, they had the same doubts. You might be familiar with a guy named Doubting Thomas. He gets a bad rap because he's the empiricist of the group. He's actually the fact checker. So when what appears maybe to be Jesus, you know, is in front of him, he's like, I need, so, I, need to, I need some evidence here. And Jesus says, go ahead and touch the wounds. And Thomas, who is a Jew, touches the wounds of Jesus. And you know what he says? He says, my Lord and my God. You know how rare it is for one Jewish man to call another Jewish man his God? Something happened. See, that's an important point right there, what I just said. You have to ask the question, why is Christianity a thing? Why is it even here? It was this fledgling movement. The early followers of Jesus were all freaked out, right? They were really nervous. They're like, oh, they just crucified our leader. What's next for us? And they're literally, the texts tell us that they are in hiding out of fear. Something happened to change them. They would become martyrs, dying, believing that Jesus was who he said he was. There is only one, I'm gonna say it this way, 
There is only one rational explanation for that, and that is this. They saw the resurrected Jesus, and now everything changed. They were willing to die for him. So what's really cool is over and over again, there's this talk of eternal life. Jesus comes. You know, he's like, I have power over death, and here's how it's going to work. You're going to need my help. You're going to need my help in seeing this coming because I know there's going to be some doubt on your part, so I'm going to forewarn you. I'm going to tell you what's coming. Luke chapter 18, Jesus took the 12. These are 12 of his closest followers. He takes them aside, engages in a conversation with them, and he says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, but let me tell you how this is going to go down. Everything that is written by the prophets, you say, what prophets? Thumb through the Old Testament. There's over 300 very specific prophets that tell of a forthcoming Messiah they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He's fulfilled all of them up until the death point, death, burial, and resurrection. But he says it's all going to be fulfilled. Everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, will be fulfilled. And here's what's left. He says he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him. They're going to insult him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him, and then they're going to kill him. Three, two, one, he's coming back. Three, two, one, he's coming back on the third day. He will rise again. And the disciples are like, what? <laughs> okay, if the Son of Man, you, Jesus, or the Messiah, the chosen one, you fulfill all these prophecies, wait, you're going to die? <laughs> that doesn't really fit our Jewish perspective of the Messiah that is going to come and be crucified. They had a hard time understanding it. But the resurrection changed all of this. Christianity should not exist. Within 300 years, it will become the religion of the Roman Empire. How does that happen? So not only did this resurrection give hope in the life to come, but what's really cool is that Christian relied on the resurrection to give them hope in the here and now. So, again, one of the early followers of Jesus, a man named Peter, <laughs> he was one of those deniers, right? He's famous for denying Jesus, actually. He didn't deny Jesus once, but three times. Jesus gets arrested, and Peter's like, uh, I don't know this guy. No, you were with him, right? You know this guy. No, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And he bails on Jesus just like everybody else. He ends up dying the death of a martyr because he saw the resurrected Jesus, and he's like, okay, it's game on. I, I, you did it. You did it. Later, he writes to a group of Christians that are struggling. And here's why this group of Christians were struggling, because it's going to get really difficult for them in society. So what happens is Christians, they refused to worship the emperor, and that's a big problem. If you were under Roman authority, they wanted everybody to bow the knee to the emperor. But Christians wouldn't do that. And yet at the same time, they weren't like others who didn't bow the knee. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. But Christians, they didn't bow the knee, but they didn't want to overthrow the Roman government. In fact, they're pretty good people. It's like, you know, it's like they pay their taxes. They help the poor. But the fact that they don't swear their allegiance to the emperor, that's a big problem. So in a few decades, this maniac is going to come on the scene. His name is Nero. It appears that he himself sets fire to Rome, and then he blames the Christians. From that point forward, to be a Christian is to have a death sentence, okay? 
So there's a group of early Christians in first century, mid first century AD, they're really struggling with some hard times. And when Peter writes to encourage them, it's fascinating what he talks about. Let me read it to you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, interesting language, born again. But we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he says that this resurrection of Jesus has everything to do with the living hope here and now, not just in the life to come, but it influences what you're facing right now in this world. Whatever it is, and I know it's hard, you can still have hope, Christian. This is really good on God's part because humans have a desperate and deep psychological need for hope. I was thinking about this with my dog the other day, just observing her. My dog, my dog cares nothing about her retirement. <laughs> you ever notice that about your pets? They're not just worried about stuff like that. It's like my dog spends zero amount of time improving her appearance. <laughs> Never. It's like she could care less what you think about her. In fact, like, I'll be with my friends, you know, we'll be hanging out, we'll be watching some sports or something, and the, the dog will come in and just, like, in front of everybody, vomit on the floor and lay there and look at me like, you're going to clean that up. <laughs> no self-awareness. Doesn't care what you think. Humans are very different. We're constantly ask the, asking the question, am Am I liked? Am I doing it right? How about this? Am I likable? What do other people think about me? This is why it takes at least 10 compliments to make up for every one negative thing that's said about you. And even then, it might take more. In all creation, only humans experience existential crisis. Why do you think that is? Because we have this desperate need for hope in our lives. And if you don't have hope, you will suffer from deep anxiety, deep despair, and deep depression. The number one cause of suicidality, hopelessness. So what's really interesting is that the author says, when you think about resurrection, it's not just about the life to come, it's about what you face in the here and now. So, as a real-life living example of this, my friend Heather was kind enough to share with us all her story. And it's a great example of what it means to put your hope in God. Before we show it, let me say this. Your hope is only as good as what you place it in, just like your faith. Your faith is only as good as what you place your faith in. Let's listen to Heather's story. My name is Heather. I am a native to Arizona, born and raised not too far from Illuminate. Uh, my older brother and I were raised in a Christian home by my two amazing parents. I grew up going to church every single week and became super involved. I went to every single summer camp, winter camp, missions trip, and event throughout my teenage years. and 
even into college, and I loved church. I loved going to church. I loved the social aspect of it because my friends were there, but I also really did love learning about God, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity that I had those years to build the foundation of my faith and of my relationship with God because little did I know I was really going to need it later on in my life. It was 2018. Um, I had been married to my high school sweetheart, Matt, for about 16 years, and we had two beautiful daughters who were seven and nine at the time. And on June 4th, I got a phone call that nobody wants to get. It was my doctor telling me that I had breast cancer. I was devastated. My world was rocked. And for days following my diagnosis, things just got harder and harder. After more tests and doctor's appointments and scans, I learned that I would need to go through chemotherapy. And I was terrified of chemo. I knew that it meant that my cancer was more serious and more aggressive. It meant that my treatment was going to last way longer than I had thought. It meant I was going to get sicker before I would get better. And most of all, I was worried about what it meant for my daughters, about what they were going to have to see and what they were going to have to go through alongside me. And I just felt hopeless. I was dreading the months to come, and I was so scared about how I was possibly going to get through it all. But then I realized that that wasn't what God wanted for me, that even though he was allowing something really, really hard to happen, he didn't want me to sit in that despair. He wanted me to cling to my faith and focus on trusting him to get through it and to seek him in the journey. He was still the same God that I had learned about all my life, and I just knew that he wasn't going to leave me, and I had the hope that he would get me through it all. God helped me through 17 rounds of chemo and targeted therapy drugs for over 13 months, losing my hair, losing a lot of my strength and stamina, and two pretty rough surgeries. But he was with me every step of the way. Trust me, it was not easy, but it seemed like every single time I had a really, really hard day, God would somehow give me a sign that he was there whether that was just looking out the window and seeing an amazing sunset or getting an encouraging text from a friend or a card in the mail or my daughter telling me that she loved my bald head or my husband telling me that I was so strong and beautiful. He was there every step of the way. Whenever I was in a valley, God met me there and he brought me out of it. There was so much joy in my journey and some days I had to look a little bit harder for it, but it was always there. He always gave me the strength to get through that day and gave me the hope that everything was going to be okay. This past November, I celebrated three years in remission. And even today, through the fears of my cancer coming back or dealing with lingering side effects or even through life's difficulties, I continue to trust and I continue to see God meet me wherever I am. There can always be hope in the midst of despair, and there is nothing that God can't get us through. And I can tell you from personal experience that it is so much easier to go through life's difficulties when we choose to cling to who God is, our healer, our protector, our strength, and our ultimate source of hope. One of the things I love about Heather's story is that there's a sense of hope not only 10,000 years from now, 
but even 10 months from now. Some of you might be familiar with the name Viktor Frankl. He wrote a really interesting, fascinating book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he was taken prisoner in Nazi Germany and went through several different concentration camps. Do you know the, you know where the name concentration camp comes from? Concentration camp. So what happens in life is, over the course of time, you experience loss. My mom died in January, but she was with us for almost 90 years. Several years earlier, my dad passed away, but we had him for over 80 years. Throughout life, you will have friends come and go. You might have some health issues. You might have some job transfers. But when you're in a concentration camp, the losses are concentrated. In other words, you lose everything immediately. You lose your family. You lose your wealth. You lose your health. Everything is taken away from you, literally in a moment. It's a concentrated loss in the concentration camp. So. Being a psychiatrist, Victor began observing what it was about certain people that allowed them to survive. Some did and some didn't. And he made this observation. There were many who entered the camp and they just had no sense of hope whatsoever and they were the first to go. It's like they entered and they just thought, we're never getting out of here. We're going to die here. And it's like they gave up. They gave, it's like he said they were like zombies walking around, and, and eventually their just life was drained from them. And then there were those who were the optimists, and everybody loves to be around an optimist, but the problem for the optimist is reality. And so the optimist was like, we're going to get out of here tomorrow, man. Tomorrow, we're going to get out of here. And then tomorrow would come, and they were still in the camp. Well, no, it'll be Tomorrow. Then the next day would come, and they're still in the camp. And then the next day, and after a while, they just lost hope. Those that survived best in the camp were those who were able to say, someday we're going to make it out of here. Not going to be tomorrow. Probably not even next week. Maybe not even next month. But at some point, we're going to get out of here. And when we do, life is going to be different for us. It's almost like there will be a rebirth. One might say we will be born again. It's the baker who said, you know, one day, as I walk out of this place, I envision myself baking bread again and feeding people and making them happy and making them smile. Because I have experienced the pain and the suffering, and I'm going to use that for a greater purpose. It was the artist who said, I, when I get out of here, I, I can't wait to play music and bring joy back into people's lives because I know deep pain and suffering. This is what it means to be a Christian. That's why the Bible talks about Christians as being new creations. That's the language, born again. It's a great phrase. It's like, I have a different perspective, I have a different outlook, and that changes 
everything. So you might be here this morning and you're like, you know what, this sounds really good. And this is exactly not only what the world needs right now, but it's what you need personally. How do you get it? I'm going to explain it to you. It's very simple. You simply tell God. That's the definition of prayer. It's just communicating with God, talking with God, and it begins with what we talked about earlier. There's just an admission of what we all know to be true inside of us, and that is we're part of the problem. There's something in us that's broken and needs fixed, and all of our junk we place on Jesus, and in return, he gives us that eternal life. And then we ask God to help us grow in that understanding. So I, was, I just want to tell you, if you're here this morning and that's the desire of your heart, Maybe you have more questions about that. You're kind of like, yeah, it, it, I, I, I want to know a little bit more. Um, it sounds right, but I'm not completely sure you're in a great space. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. On that little car that's in front of you, there's a cross. Just circle that cross. Fill out your information. You can drop it off in one of those wooden boxes on your way out or with somebody at the tent. We would love to have this conversation with you. For those of us that have already made that decision and understand that, Let's move forward in confident hope. I don't know what the struggle is in front of you, but it's something because there isn't a person in this room that doesn't have some kind of pain or heartache. You can't, life has a way of taking things away from you. What do you do with that sense of despair? Because Jesus was raised, hopelessness went out with the resurrection. There is nothing that God cannot do in your life. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And in this moment, we're all just going to simply pray, God, do exactly what you want to do in our midst. For those that are here this morning and these words are resonating with them, Lord, I pray that they would take action, that they would experience a movement from hopelessness to hopefulness. As we leave this place, give us a renewed vision of who Jesus is and his place in our lives. Because at the end of the day, it's all for your glory. We're trusting you with tomorrow and the day after, and we know for certain you've got eternity covered because of that empty tomb. And for that, we simply say thank you. All for your glory, God. And we pray in the name of the one who makes it all possible. The name of the one who has power over death. And that name is Jesus Christ. Amen.